What is up, you guys? Welcome back to Consuming Crime with Jen and Jules. I'm Jen. And I'm Jules. So, today, before we get into this story, remind you guys, uh, give us five stars for every listening, please and thank you, and if you have anything you feel you can make the show a little better, feel free to leave us a comment, and we will work on that. Um, before we do get into today's case, though, I did want to, um, give the show over to Jen so she could tell you guys a little, a little story, and it'll teach you a little something about being, um, being street smart. Okay, guys, so... For those of you that know me know that I'm really not dramatic. I stay calm in almost like any situation and I give every single weirdo the benefit of the doubt. I'm like, I'm the drama queen. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, maybe, you know, they're just staring at the people behind me, not me, you know, whatever. So I was craving sushi. So me and my boyfriend went to go get some. And he's like, oh, we we called the order in. So he's like, oh, just wait in the car and I'm going to go grab it. And I was like, okay, whatever. It's usually um, like a place we go often, so I didn't think much of it. So then I'm sitting there, and then I turn to my right, and there's a van, a white van, you know. I'm already scared, but then I'm like, okay, whatever, it's just a van. And there was a guy in the front seat, and I'm like, okay, maybe he's waiting for somebody to get out of the store or whatever. But mind you, one of the stores was closed, and then the one that would have been open was this liquor store. But I can clearly see the owner was just like there cleaning the window. Like there was nothing, there was nobody inside. So I'm like, okay, like what is this guy doing here? So then I'm just straight looking at him because I just don't want to lose eye contact with him because he's giving me the creeps. So then I'm looking at him and he just has a hoodie on and the hood is on over his head and I can see like a beard. So I'm like, hmm, okay, that's weird. And then like he, we kind of like make, we look at each other, but he doesn't do anything. Like he just turns back and I'm like, okay. So then he is like, I want to say like two parking spots away. And then I'm like, okay, whatever. So I'm still there. And then my boyfriend's freaking taking forever. So the next, you know, a van pulls up, another van pulls up, like a black one. Same like those creepy white ones, but a black one pulls up right next to me. And I'm like, hmm, okay, it's getting a little creepy. (laughs) But again, like, I don't like to seem crazy. Like, I don't like to seem like that weirdo. Yeah, like, or paranoid. So I try to keep my cool. And I was just sitting there and I was waiting for him to get off the car because it's like, what's taking you so long? Just get off the damn car. And he wouldn't. And he looked just like the other dude. Hoodie, beard. And then I look at him, you know, like, I was was just literally going to smile at him to see if I see, like, some sort of, like, normalness. No, he looks dead at me and just turns. And he stays in the car. And I'm like, okay, like now i'm just freaking out so i was like should i just wait or like what if he pulls out a gun you just never know nowadays and i thought it was really strange so then i was just like okay heck no like i'd rather look weird than just risk my life so i jump over like the center console and then get off on like the driver's side because i wasn't driving and then i just go into the sushi place and i and then you know my boyfriend's like oh i'm sorry it's shaking so long. i'm like no it's fine literally like a couple seconds to a minute they give him the food and we leak we walk out and that van was gone the black one yeah dude. isn't that weird like why would you leave like it's literally a couple seconds like even if you were gonna get something from the like i just feel like it would take longer than a couple seconds like he was gone because the guy in the white van was talking like kind of like on a phone so i was like okay like my head was like did he talk to somebody and like that's why the other van pulled up and yeah 
it's just scary i'm I'm, with you 100 percent. moral of the story is i'm not crazy and i'm like i hate to look crazy i hate to do the most as if i'm not sure but at that moment even if it wasn't i feel like i did the right thing because you just never know so just 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 do what you follow your intuition in other words because and don't be in denial yeah what does crime junkies say be weird be rude stay alive yep be rude be weird stay alive there we go listen to them that's why we're doing what we're doing <laughs> yeah it really is aside from that i'm glad you're alive because i definitely think that's what that was and that is seriously terrifying because me and jen live down the street from each other and i just i don't i i don't know i feel like if something would have happened i would have made it my whole life to like find you i like thought about what would i have done in that situation i'd be like oh my god I was I was at my desk and I was kind of like I didn't want to tell you because I don't want you to think you're like you stressed me out but I was like what would I have done okay because the cops aren't gonna do anything they're gonna take forever because they always do <laughs> like maybe she's a runaway she's an adult she can do it and then I am a very independent person so I felt like people wouldn't doubt like actually no I always come home though but um all right let's get into today's case guys today's case is set in Chahalas, Washington any change in places I will mention further in the story On Sunday, January 15, 1985, a man by the name of Mike Hadler went to visit his grandparents, Ed and Minnie Morin. He went to the store with Ed to grab eggs and milk. What he had yet to realize was that this was the last time he would see his grandparents alive. On Thursday night at around 8.30, Mike received a phone call from his father telling him to get to grandma and grandpa's house immediately. Right off the bat, Mike is riddled with concern, of course. His father's voice was full of urgency and panic. Mike rushes to his grandparents' home, where they lived alone, and sees the blue and red lights. There are police everywhere. He is greeted by an officer who informs him that his grandparents are missing. He adds that it looks like foul play. Officers let Mike through and he runs into the home. There doesn't appear to be any forced entry. He goes into the living room. There are bank statements all over the floor. It appeared as though it was rummaged through. There is also no blood or anything knocked over besides the bank statements. So it, so obviously there wasn't a struggle. It just looks like somebody went in and I don't even think they would have grabbed them because there's nothing knocked over unless they just picked it up. Mike noticed that his grandmother's purse was left in the living room. Everyone knew that she did not go anywhere without her purse. Something is definitely wrong. With all of these details unwinding, the family was in shock. Who would want to kidnap an older couple at random? Ed and Minnie Morin were already in their in their 80s. What is the motive? Before we get into the motive, like I think already, like through the story, we can probably tell from the bank statements, like it's probably the money, maybe. But like, how do they know they had money? Oh, so it what like? Because when I think of just papers thrown, I think of like somebody's trying to stage a robbery. Mm. But in this case, I mean, maybe there was more mo- more motive, you know? Yeah. They're definitely they've been taken so and far. obviously it, it it does have to it has to be somebody that knows they have money so mm-hmm. maybe not somebody like too too close but close enough yeah or somebody close to a relative of theirs or yeah and their car is missing too so i'm like is it possible that they just threw stuff on the floor and drove off i don't know <laughs> i mean they are 80 they're probably just lazy to take it back up. <laughs> <laughs> i mean it is they they did make a whole documentary so obviously it's gonna lead to something So before we get into the motive and uncovering further details, let me provide you some background on the couple. Ed and Minnie Morin had a Christmas tree farm. They would sell their trees around the holidays. 
This was how they paid for retirement, along with what was in their savings. Minnie's son, Dennis Hadler, owned a large logging company. So that's probably where they got like their to grow trees from, you know, little sister farm. This logging company was extremely well known in the area. It was a successful and lucrative business. So they did have money. Hmm. Ed, and then they were also popular. So it's like anyone would know that they had money at this point. They were like everyone's grandparents, which is really sweet. They took care of people. Um, here's a picture of them. Oh, they look so happy. I know. That's actually when I started getting like emotional. I'm like, sad. Yeah. I'm going to post a picture on the website, consumingcrime.com. So go check it out over there, guys. So this brings us back to why. Did someone want to hold them for ransom? Did someone just target them at random? Was it someone they knew? Most importantly, where the hell were they? People began looking, and there were hundreds of people involved in this search. They were looking for anything that could lead them to answers. They were also trying to find their car, which was a green-colored 1969 Chrysler. This car was Ed's baby. Wherever the car was, this would lead them to the couple. The very next day, in the early morning hours, the police received a phone call. A witness spotted a car in the yard Bird's shopping mall. It looked abandoned and was parked far from the entrance by itself. It was a green 1969 Chrysler. This was Ed and Minnie's car for sure. Officers arrive on the scene and at first glance, the car was covered in ice. They can't see in the windows, but they also don't want to tamper with anything too much. So one officer blew like the way you like, like blew warm air on the glass. And the first thing he saw was blood everywhere. Oh my gosh. There were also gunshot pellets in the dashboard, but no Ed and no Minnie. So it was clear that somebody had been shot, obviously. Um, they suspected that maybe they were in the trunk. So they managed to get the trunk open and there's nothing. So the car was full of like snow? It was just, it was a really cold morning. Okay, okay, okay. So maybe like the condensation, it was like icy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, nothing in the trunk. And Mr. Morin's hat was also found on the floorboard in the front, like by the front seat. At this point, we know at least that they are injured. The neighborhood still has hope and the search continues until Mike Hadler receives another phone call. Someone had been walking down a logging road and spotted the body of an older woman, at first thinking it was a CPR dummy. Um, of at, course. Yeah, of course. As they got a closer look, they came to realize that it was Minnie Morin. They looked around again and saw another body lying near a bush. It was Ed Morin. I mm. know. <laughs> they both had been shot in the back multiple times. Minnie had been shot in the shoulder and through her neck and face. Mm. Ed had been shot square in the back. And there were also drag marks, which means they must have been shot in the car and then later dragged into the woods. And I think the saddest thing said in the documentary, and I'll never forget it, is one of them, is that one of them had to watch the other one die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't. <laughs> uh, okay. So let's get into the investigation. Now detectives have a double homicide to solve. They found a bank receipt in Ed's pocket. With It was um, for a withdrawal of $8,500. They went to the bank and followed up with the teller that helped Ed that Thursday. She said he had called and asked how much was in his account. So she jokingly responded saying, a, a nickel and a dime at least. So he responded saying he'll need about $8,500. But it was Ed on the phone. So mm -hmm. he was obviously being forced to call. He went to the bank and the money wasn't ready yet, so he went to wait in the car. So when the teller came out to go get him, he had driven away. 
she said that it was Ed driving and that she thought she saw him with another person. That this was all the police had to go on with. They had no murder weapon, all the fingerprints belonged to either the couple or members of their family, and all the blood belonged to the couple. So now the question is, who knew they had exactly 8,500 to withdraw? Someone close to them? The police immediately started looking at the family. There had been cigarette butts in the car, but the couple did not smoke. However, their grandson, Mike Hadler, did. Um, Mike had a temper and a history with law enforcement. They needed to look at people who had access to their home since there was no forced entry and someone who knew how much was in their bank. To which I say, if there's no forced entry, that doesn't necessarily mean that someone didn't knock and put a gun at your face. You know? True. That's That was what I thought when they said that, but... I just think that at this point in the documentary, it's they're making it seem like the detectives were only looking at the family, and that bothered me, because I'm like, there cannot be more, but again, they could just be doing that. Yeah, and I mean, it's just, it, it is kind of like the first thought you think is somebody you know, because almost always it is somebody the victims know. That's so I, I can see why they're they're just trying to get them out of the way. But, I mean, yeah, I, ho- I would hope there's another whole team yeah. trying to, like... At the same time, yeah. not wasting too yeah. much time on the family. But we'll see. We'll see. We still don't know who did it. So they did not end up finding anything incriminating about Mike besides the fact that he would drink and start fights. However, this started after his grandparents were found dead. Officers would actually break up the fights that Mike would have at bars. And Mike would always say something like, shouldn't you be finding out who killed my grandparents? And I didn't write this down, but I thought it was funny. Um, when officers looked into Mike, because they interviewed Mike in the documentary, Mike was like, y'all can kiss my ass. <laughs> and I was like, same, dude. I need to mention also that this murder happened around the same area and time that the Green River Killer ran loose. Does that sound familiar to you? Yes, it does. As a quick background, I didn't write this down. The Green River Killer was a man who would pick up prostitutes, strangle them during sex, and then dump their bodies along the 65-mile-long Green River in uh, King County. He had later confessed to 48 killings. When the documentary first mentioned this, my initial thought was like, nah. They're not prostitutes. (laughs) Yeah, they're not prostitutes and it's not his MO. Yeah. So I think they just, I put parentheses, get Jen's thoughts. I didn't know if you would agree with me. I mean, yeah, no, like, but sometimes I feel like you never know, dude. Like you never know people are willing to switch up their MO this one time. If the opportunity's there, it um neither uh, one of the couple showed signs of sexual assault either so spoiler alert the documentary does not mention the green river killings again i think they were just trying to throw that in there somewhere um so i guess he didn't do it (laughs) (laughs) thanks (laughs) (laughs) on uh on december 31st 1986 12 days after the murder the station receives another phone call A witness had seen a man walking through the Yardbird shopping mall the morning of the murder, and the man appeared to be holding what looked like a rifle wrapped in some white cloth. The man was walking quickly through the parking lot as well. That's the only reason the witness noticed him, because he was walking so fast. So police now had a description. Dark brown, wavy hair, a small beard, stocking cap, and a green army coat. What is a stocking cap? Like a hat? I have no idea. If they can just say a hat. Like when I think of a stocking, I just think of like women's like. I think of like Christmas stocking. <laughs> I don't think he's wearing a Santa hat. Okay, but it's coming from you. Who's she? Still has her Christmas tree up, guys. It's gonna stay up. <laughs> anyway, so they drew up a sketch and released it to the public. The phone started ringing like crazy, and this tends to happen a lot actually. Every time they release a sketch, which could be frustrating, but at the same time. 
it could be one in a thousand. You just got to make sure you follow up. Detectives began taking pictures of people that looked like the sketch and created a photographic array. This is basically like a piece of paper with a bunch of pictures on it with the suspect. So like a paper lineup. Okay. Essentially. The documentary skips forward to April 1990, four years after the murders. The station receives a call from a man who knew someone confessed to the crime. It was his own brother. He said he would laugh about it and brag. The man's name was Scott Coulter, who was once married into the Morin family. Scott said, I got that bitch, killed her parents, and got all their savings too. Scott had a record of burglarizing and being violent. He was also involved in the drug world. Okay, so rewind. Who's like, how Scott related to the family? I don't think they, they mentioned who he was married to, but he was married into the family. So he had been m- married previously to like maybe one of the granddaughters, maybe one of the nieces. Okay, okay, that makes sense. I just, because I heard brother, so that's what threw me off. Oh, the, the guy calling in said his brother, Scott. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Like I said, he was involved in the drug world, so on November 14, 1990, detectives organized a sting operation to obtain a confession from Scott. They would pretend to be part of a mob and pick up Scott from the airport. They started asking him about a job that was done a couple years ago involving an older couple. Scott confessed to the murders immediately. He said that he took them to a shopping center and shot them with a 22 caliber. So he's telling the mafia. Yeah, the fake mafia. The fake mafia. Yeah. That he did this. Yeah. But here's the thing. What we know is they were shot, dragged into the woods, and then the car was dumped at the shopping mall. Yeah. And it wasn't a 22 caliber. It was a shotgun. It was a 12-gauge shotgun. Okay. So... So obviously they got the he got the details all wrong. Yeah, detectives actually said he would have gotten it more right if he had just read one of the papers. And he just wanted to be the guy, but officers were quick to figure out that he was just bragging. Can you get jail time for that? <sighs> I like don't know. Scott, like six months. Just give Scott six months. <laughs> yeah. Like that's just a waste of freaking time. Like detectives Resources. are really getting fake mafia members. I hate Scott scott peterson too (laughs) (laughs) well the good news is they don't bring him up again because they've already good screw him but the bad news is now they're back to square one so the case goes cold at this point in the documentary they start interviewing mike a little more and mike hadler said that he would have dreams about different ways he would torture whoever did this to his grandparents so in may 2004 19 years after the murders mind you i don't know what happened in between these years the documentary just likes to jump forward and i'm like what 19 years well girl that would probably be like a 19 hour documentary that's true (laughs) i'll just like twiddle our thumbs until i don't have the i just want to know what's going on here like i don't want to go through 19 years uh so bruce kimsey puts himself on the case Bruce was only 10 years old when the crime initially happened, but he remembered the tragedy like it was yesterday and he wanted to solve it. Which is kind of cool because you see something happens as a kid I and you're like, that. I'm going to grow up. Because like, it's like, this. I feel like they're passionate. Mm-hmm. He went back into the file and it was ginormous. He went through all the witnesses and followed up with all of them. He would ask them what part of the street they were standing on when they saw the car, trying to pinpoint which direction the car was going, maybe if there was another car. Um, and then... What he did hear, and they didn't mention this earlier in the documentary, was that Ed and Minnie were in the front, Ed was driving, Minnie was in passenger, and there was one person in the back. That person was wearing a green army jacket. Previously, officers had speculated that it was someone in the family. However, Bruce felt like it didn't have to be. He believed that if it was someone in the family, they would have asked for more money because they knew they had more money. So me and Bruce are on the same page because this is, this is what I had thought of 
initially and again i don't know if detectives looked into this first because documentary is going to tell the documentary how they want um he believed or suspected it had been someone that worked for their christmas tree farm another witness mm. yeah because that person would have known they had money but but not, not exactly how much yeah yeah another witness had pointed out the same man in the back seat with the army jacket bruce took the old photographic array and made it look a lot clearer he described it, it was like super grainy it was black and white it was really dark he made it color he cleared it up and this is important because he had witnesses come in and a woman did point out a man on november 12 2005 20 years after the murder see what i mean like who, who did she point out which man what happened who's the guy so on november 12 2005 20 years after the murder Mike was going deer hunting and he hears a guy calling his name. It was his old friend Jake Shriver. Or Shriver. I don't like sure. him. You don't like him? No. They start catching up and talking about Mike's grandparents. Jake says, I can't do this anymore. You don't understand the hell I've lived in my mind for the last 20 years. No. Yeah. Jake knew what happened. Was this his friend? Mm hmm. Fake ass friend, dude. <laughs> mm hmm. So here's what happened from Jake's point of view. Jake and his mom were driving on Highway 12 behind a car that was driving really slow. He told his mom to pass them. His mom goes to pass them and Jake sees Ed driving, many in the passenger and two men in the back. These two men being co-workers at the Christmas tree farm that Jake worked at, Rick and Greg Reif. Why did he not say anything? A couple days later, Greg goes up to Jake to make sure he didn't snitch. He said, if you tell anyone, we will do what we did to them to your mother, father, brothers, and you. They would even drive past Jake's house almost daily just to keep the fear instilled. And at the time, Jake was only 17. When you're 17, I could understand, like, you're still young and like, everything is believable. Yeah. I just felt bad for, for him that he had to suffer 20 years not knowing who harmed his grandparents. I don't like the f I hope that, that this kid didn't actually say, you don't understand the hell I've been through these past 20. I hope he didn't actually say that because what do you mean the hell you've been through? Like, excuse me? At that same time, when Jake was 17, he bought himself a gun and he still keeps it around this day. The interviewer actually said, do you have a gun on you right now? And Jake was like, it's in the drawer behind me. You never know, sorry. On December 18th, 1985, this is the night before the murders. So now we're gonna get into like what happened that night. Rick and Greg showed up at the Morans' home. They knocked and walked in with the guns demanding money. See, knocked, pointing the gun. They came to realize that they did not have any cash. That is when they started looking through bank statements. They drove Ed and Minnie to the bank to retrieve as much money as was available at that bank. Cause I um I don't I don't think I mentioned this. Ed and Minnie kept money at like different banks. It was very common for people their age. With time running out, also having been seen on the highway, they had Ed drive them to the woods. Ed and Minnie were shot in the car, both in their backs, then dragged out into the bushes. Afterwards, the Rife brothers abandoned the car at the Yardbird shopping mall parking lot. Weeks later, they moved to Alaska. Mike found out about them moving to Alaska, so Mike moved to Alaska. Still same, like same. <laughs> he also got a job there, like he was serious, like I'm gonna find these guys. Later on, he had learned that Greg had died. This angered him, and I don't, I don't even know how he died. It just said that he died. Um, this angered him as he wanted to be the one to take care of it. Mike's parents called him and convinced him to come back home and that his grandparents would not have wanted this from him. Mike was angry, but he ended up moving back home. And then again with the jumping. On July 8th, 2012, 27 years after the murder, and I don't, I, they didn't mention if somebody went 
to the police with the Rife Brothers tip, or if that same woman, remember earlier they said that's the guy, mm-hmm. or if they're going from that tip. I'm not sure. Okay. But they know it's the Rife Brothers. The so, how, how many years into it did they find out that that guy say, I know it's them too? That guy told Mike he knew it was them 20 years after. So then did Mike take that to the police? I have no idea. I don't know. I even watched it over because I wanted to know. it's like 27 years? Okay, what happens? Bruce Kimsey obtained an arrest warrant for Rick Rife. Officers went up to King Sam and Alexa. Alexa. Alaska. <laughs> Alexa. You have dyslexia <laughs> with, um, <laughs> with countries and cities and states. Officers went up to King Sam in Alaska and arrested him for the murders of Ed and Minnie Morin. Rick was now older and he was on an oxygen tank. In 2013, Rick Reif was sentenced to 103 years in prison for kidnapping, robbery, and murder in the first degree. It is unknown which brother took the actual shot. But I tell myself that they got shot at the same time. That way, one did not have to watch the other guy. I think there was only one gun. So he was... Oh, man. Fucking James. Who? Is that his name? That's that's the guy from last week's story. Jake. Jake. (laughs) Doesn't even fucking matter. (laughs) Fucking Jake. I know, He could have totally gave them what they freaking deserved. Like, sooner than 20 years. Yeah. 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 It's, like, wild. It's wild. I'm still a little mad that rick was on an oxygen tank like we should have gotten him when he was younger can you just like take the oxygen tank away from him <laughs> and then like give it back and then take it back and just torture him <laughs> dude you and mike would just be best yeah right off mike's a homie dude i feel bad that he had to wait all this time yeah, kiss my ass <laughs> you are not interviewing me about my grandparents how dare you hey you never know though that's true there's some crazy ass grandkids out there so but mike you're not one of them love you mike you love you <laughs> <laughs> all right guys that is it for today's case I'm by the sad. way are you sad yes. oh because you saw the picture of them? i'm just not satisfied like i'm not satisfied i'm not satisfied either with the way this turned out so my source for today's episode was um cold case files episode two the first episode i believe i covered two weeks ago oh no well technically december 25th the last time we had posted before last week um but yeah, if you want to watch the documentary, um, and then we'll I'll post pictures on the website of you know what the couple look like, and then the the sketch of the the beard or whatever, <laughs> the stash, <laughs> the stash. All right, guys, thank you for consuming crime with us today. Toodles. Peace out, little homies.